Welcome to Thriving Through Menopause. I'm your host, Clarissa Christensen, an international menopause expert, author, and speaker. I help women go from feeling uncertain, uncomfortable, and struggling to experiencing a new sense of confidence, freedom, and vitality. My own story mirrors that of thousands of women that I have connected with through writing my book, speaking engagements, and coaching. Like you, I felt unprepared, unsupported, and at times dismissed by family, employers, and even doctors. That's why I created this podcast as a place of advocacy, offering facts, resources, and a community where you can become more empowered to take control of your menopause journey. Join us each week as we dive into honest, open, raw conversations on the topics that matter deeply to menopausal midlife women. From our changing bodies to our relationships, to dealing with menopause and aging at work and in society. My mission is to help you to tap into our collective wisdom so you can emerge more powerful, wiser, not just older, thriving and ready to embrace wholeheartedly the next chapter in your life. Well, welcome to another episode of Thriving Through Menopause. I'm your host, Clarissa Christensen. And today I have a very special guest who is a real women's expert. She is an experienced obstetrician specialist, and I know that she has a deep passion for the menopause. Welcome to the show, Dr. Donna Ivory. Marissa, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Well, I'm so delighted. It took us a while with all that's been happening in the world with COVID and the like to get here. But in our preliminary conversation, I was just so excited to have you here with decades of experience of working with women to, I think, address some of the myths, misconceptions, and more that exist in this space. But I'd like to start with maybe you telling my audience a little bit about yourself and your own journey in menopause. <laughs> well, that that could take hours and hours and hours, so I'll give you the brief version. <laughs> yeah. Thank you again for having me on this show. I'm Dr. Donna Ivory. I'm a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist here in the U.S. I was actually born and raised in good old Florida, since Florida stays in the news for craziness. Perhaps I can show that everything coming out of Florida is not completely crazy. I started my career as an engineer. I did not find that my personality fit the introverted nature of an engineer. And so I went back to medical school and OBGYN was one of the few things that I really liked. I loved the opportunity to help women change their lives. Because if women change their lives, then they will change the lives of their families. And that's pretty powerful. I have been... I was just going to say that is incredibly powerful. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, And I think that's part of the beauty of menopause, because it's midlife, and that's the time that pr- probably still a good majority of women have their no longer have young children in the home or their children are out of the home. And you start realizing it's not about everyone else. It's about what's happening to me and what I can do. And we really come into our own. It's our last developmental stage. and. Once we're past that, we have a steady set of hormones in our system. 
And so the every 2.3 to 3 days of shifting hormones that happens in our fertility years is no longer there. And there are just so many other opportunities physiologically and emotionally that we can take advantage of. So I think this is a remarkable time frame and and it's been my pleasure, I guess, really 20, I've been a physician since 92. So I've been a physician for 28 years. And then the first four years after medical school was residency training in obstetrics and gynecology. And so I've been in the field about 28 years. Wow, that's, and you've seen a lot of change, I would think, in that time too, in the way in which women are changing in terms of the way they address these issues. And of course, we're now in a phase when there's more talking about menopause. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That That's huge. One of the things that has struck me over the years is a lack of information that on an individual level, how many patients consistently come in because they just did not know this was going to happen. They didn't, it, not that they didn't intellectually know, but they didn't know what this meant. How was it going to feel? What symptoms should they have expected? I think the ones that feel most derailed by their symptoms are the ones the most in shock. And we would like to think that, oh, well, ask your mom, ask your aunt. But if you reflect back, that generation was a generation where everyone had hysterectomies and their elders were taken out. So they didn't necessarily experience natural menopause. And then if you go to your grandmother and your great aunt and an older, they didn't talk about these things because nice girls didn't talk about those kind of things. Respectable no, women didn't, didn't talk like, about it. It was like something that got whispered. In, yes. Sort of whispered away. She's going through the, you know, change. Oh, yes. And that was, was that was the sum total of the conversation if you were lucky. Oh, yes. And if you had a mom struggling in the household, you just had to suffer just as she was suffering. And eventually it either got better or it didn't get better in terms of once a set of changes happened in the household, maybe they didn't get better. And, but you never talked about these things. So I think the lack of intrinsic information is what is, has astounded me the most over the years. And then personally, how significant certain changes can be in terms of how you function, especially if you are a professional, if you're in a work situation where there is very little room for error, there is very significant sets of safety measures. And I think that if you are personally starting to feel derailed by symptoms, feeling like you can't trust that you can function the way you used to function, that was probably the most devastating experience I had about it. Yeah. And did you have any particular th symptoms like brain fog or just strong emotions that contributed to that feeling? I had quite a few symptoms. And it's funny. I was having symptoms and my hormone levels were not elevated. My hormone levels are still not elevated. And I stopped having symptoms that were derailing 
oh, maybe three years ago, four years ago. Um, what was my worst symptom? My, the symptom that caused me the most challenge to my confidence was not, was so, being so edgy. Some people would say bitchy. Um, that I couldn't predict how I would ha- would react. I didn't know what would set me off. And I realized that there were about three days every month that I started circling in the calendar at the office so that the staff would be aware to really fight interference to keep things from being out of control so that I didn't react in a manner that was out of control because I couldn't trust my reactions. Wow. And that was scary. That is very I, scary. I mean, when you oh, yeah. say that, Donna, that's terrifying um, because that's terrifying for ourselves, but it also sure. puts other people that you work with on edge. And in your situation, you had patients as well that are coming to you for guidance. So that's incredibly oh, you know, tense really around that time. Oh, let me tell you, I had a patient experience that was dramatic enough that it shook me up enough to t- go to the next level of doing something about my symptoms because I was going to be in a bad situation as a professional. If I couldn't moderate my response to things that I never erupted about before, does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And and I have heard this, you know, from my own clients. And obviously, I've heard this from other women who've shared their stories here, that it's mm-hmm. often when there's been an incident like that with either a client or a patient or, or a member of staff that it mm-hmm. shakes you and you think, I can't continue like this, I have to do something about it. Right, because it's going to have a tangible negative effect long-term if I don't get this under control. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's that's a pretty shaking up moment. I think, you know, we can oh, also yeah. reflect on, on that because, you know, so many of myself and so many of my listeners can, I know, relate to oh, that yes. moment. Oh, yes. And everybody has their individual issue. I didn't have hot flashes. I was just hot. When I say hot, like a furnace, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, unrelenting for probably about two years. That didn't derail me. I had control over the thermostat at home. It's just me and my child. And I literally turned the thermostat in my home down to 68. He knew to put on his winter pajamas. (laughs) I didn't want to hear it because I'm walking around literally in a tank top and shorts and I'm barely not hot. It's not like I was cool. I was just not so hot that I couldn't function. In my office, I put space heaters in every patient room and at every employee desk. And the thermostat in the office went down and patients were coming. It's so cold in here. I said, it won't be cold in your room because the patients were instructed when they got undressed, turn on the heater, make it whatever temperature you want, because I could go in the room and tolerate that local environment. But if I had to walk out of the room and the hall is hot and my desk is hot and, and just my environment is hot, it wasn't a good thing. 
but it doesn't bother me because I had control over that. Yeah, I and think I think you're to, really pointing to an important point there that control mm-hmm. is a word that a lot of women don't feel at this time of life. Of <laughs> and if you're naturally a control freak, <laughs> then losing control, having that control just you wake up and realize it's gone is very unsettling. And I think that's something that as professional women, we're afraid to talk about because it sounds like weakness. And as somebody whose career has been in engineering, which has been around all men, and in medicine, which even though in the U.S. it's transitioning to a female environment, I'm old enough that I came into medicine in a male environment, that if I was on the executive committee at the hospital, I may have been only one or two women on that board. And so I'm in a male environment, and I don't want them to know that I'm having hormonal issues. Yes. I don't want anybody to think I'm weak, that I'm aging and can't handle it anymore. And those are critical, critical issues for many women. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And that's what we hear from women across the board, irrespective of where they sit in the uh, organizational hierarchy, this not wanting to have any raise the question or have anyone to talk to it about because of being seen as not capable, too mm-hmm. old to do the job, and yes. all the stereotypical yes. ideas that float in people's head will then surface. I mean, there's a lot of unconscious yes. bias that hop- happens whether you're in medicine or whether you're in a corporate role, around what menopausal women are like and what they can and can't do. Yes, and some of those unconscious biases are in our own heads. And that's part of it too. That's where that confidence issue comes in. Um, I've been fortunate to work with a lot of professional women. And if you think about the different things that can be happening, If you are the go-to person in your corporate environment, and let's say we talk about an environment where there are a lot of meetings and gatherings and whatnot, and you're presenting and you burst into a sweat that breaks your confidence, that breaks your concentration, people see that. And they may not think much about it, but then you go back and amplify that, oh my God, I broke into a sweat and they could tell. Maybe they thought I was nervous. And so we get into this negative feedback loop with can people tell? We don't talk about bleeding issues. The first, for the first time in my life, I had episodes of horrendously heavy bleeding. And when we talk about the fact that intellectually, I've helped women through this for 20, 25 years. And the first time it happened to me, I finally understood why women end up in the emergency room looking panicked because I had to catch myself from not being panicky that not only had I bled so heavily that I soiled my clothes, that as I'm in the bathroom, I am pouring blood out of my body uncontrolled. So I, I, I'm trying, it's taking 30 or 40 minutes just to have a bathroom break to clean up. 
And in a corporate setting with what? A 15 minute break here or there. And you need a break every hour or two because you are flooding your clothes and it takes you 30 or 40 minutes to come back. That is unsettling and that is disruptive. And that challenges you, especially if you pride yourself on your ability to provide a product that you as a product has a certain consistency that you can't maintain right now. I know. I know. That's just such a huge thing. And I think you've talked about here something that doesn't get talked about a lot because there's a lot of conversation about hot flashes and there's a lot Mm -hmm. of conversation about moods, but that kind of bleeding, I can relate to that Mm because that's what I had in the early stages too. And I'd wonder what on earth is going on. And that in itself, doesn't it, Donna, sets up this fear that if that's going to happen, oh God, that's going to happen. I'm not going to be prepared. Then we're on edge all the time as well. Yes, you're sitting in a meeting. Am I bleeding through? Because you know you're bleeding. You know it's getting all over. Am I bleeding through? Can I even stand up at the break and get out without being embarrassed? And, and so how much can you focus on what's happening in that meeting if you're focusing on whether you're going to stand up and there's a pool of blood sitting in your chair? Yeah, and it is. And your whole time, you're kind of on edge. And I can remember yes. it being on edge being concerned, switching to wearing only clothes that were black or navy yes. because I didn't know what else I dared to wear. Um, bringing and changes double of clothes and with you yes. to the office and thinking, well, yes. you know, this is, this is horrific. I mean, it does end, but yes. it is a period in our lives when there's so much emotional tension in this and that the bleeding is, is, is bad, but the whole, judgment factor of what you think about yourself and what other people think of you is can at times just overwhelm you. Very much so. Very much so. And it's so funny in the sense of patients always think they're the only ones. They always think this isn't happening to anyone else because we never talk about it. I reflect back on the year, year and a half or so that I worked for AT&T Bell Labs. And I remember there was a woman in our group that had, that, that was someone that was always at our meeting. She wasn't specifically in our group daily because she was in a different location, but we routinely were part of the same team and we met. And I always thought, oh, she's awfully pale. And boy, she's in the bathroom a long time. And this is as a 20-something fresh out of college. And she never said anything. She never did anything. There were no whispers and whatnot. But I think back as an OBGYN and what I know, and I was just like, she was bleeding like a stuck pig every month. Because I remember I thought she was too pale. And that she didn't have a lot of energy. And she didn't have a lot of patience with folks. So sometimes she would talk. Sometimes, you know, you just don't bother her. And those are the kind of things that I remember. Wow. Um, I've been fortunate to work in a number of different locations in the U.S. And there are mission critical. And I, I say that because you have to understand, I grew up 
in Florida. I'm born and raised here on the Space Coast. My dad worked in a company that was a subcontractor for Kennedy Space Center. So when you hear space references, it's because that was normal in my environment. But just think about it. If you were an astronaut, and how do we handle bleeding in those situations? How do we handle changes in your hormone levels? Let's say you're support staff and a we're delayed in a launch and whatnot. You can't just get up and go to the bathroom and things like that. And so those are important types of things. What if you're in court? You could be the stenographer. You can't just get up and go to the bathroom. You can't yeah. There's so come many in roles and... like that, aren't there? There oh, are yeah. just so many what, oh, yes. And you can't do that if you're a, even if you work, I mean, for women who work in the checkout in the, in the yes. Walmarts, they're not free to go on bathroom breaks when they want to. If you're a, a, a driver of a bus, I mean, it goes yeah. on and on. Wherever you driver. are, you just yes. don't have the, the ability to just say, Hey, I'm just going to stop now for a moment. You, they have to keep pushing on. And right. we're not talking about this at all at all at that kind of level. So I'm oh, no. I'm so glad that we're having this conversation. Oh, yes. Because I, I was floored in my earlier years at the kind of things that women were putting on to get through the day without soiling themselves. And I have plenty of, impl- of former patients that work for Walmart. We, we could have a whole discussion about what it's like as an hourly worker in an evening or night shift at a supplier and the lack of breaks, the type of hard work. We we don't appreciate how much physically hard work, how many women are in physically demanding jobs like UPS drivers. And so they don't have air conditioning in those trucks. Now I'm here in Florida. So air conditioning makes a big difference. But in other places, heat may make a big difference. But they can't just stop and go to the bathroom. Nope. No, and there is just so many roles. Women do a lot of those tough roles that involve long periods of standing up. Um, A lot of organizations, and we hear that, whether that's in retail, whether that's in the Amazon type uh, environments, these environments are not very female friendly, and they're certainly not friendly in these situations. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, It's situations like this that remind you that we have a lot of work to do to make our environments appropriate for human beings that are male and female. <laughs> and and it's sad to say it that way, but you know when that struck me? So I was late to having a baby. I had my child when I was 40. One child, the one and done. <laughs> if you wait long enough, you get that one out and that's a blessing and I'm good. And so I was also at a point in my career where I was department chair. I was actually pregnant the first time I was the chair of the department in our hospital. And so my child was an infant when I was required as part of that position to go to medical executive meetings. So the leadership of every department 
gets together and then there are a couple of at-large people and as and the physicians make some decisions about types of things that are going on and people's other colleagues care, blah, 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 blah. So number one, guess what time these meetings started? They start at six or seven o'clock at night. And you're in there and folks are just, and guys are just talking. They're just talking and chit-chatting and understand they provide a full dinner for these meetings. So not like I had to cook, but guess what? I'm the cook in my house. And so the fact that I'm eating doesn't mean that everyone is eating in my household when I'm at this meeting. And so I have an infant and guess what my breasts are doing? They're filling up. So they're talking, talking, talking. And I just interrupted. I said, let me, let me help you guys understand something. I have an infant at home and we have until my breasts fill up completely to complete this meeting because I have to go home and feed my child. Now I wasn't really breastfeeding, but it was a good, good opportunity to get them on target. And do you know, they gasped. They did. They looked at each other like, oh my God, who let her in? Gosh. If men could clutch pearls, they would have clutched pearls that night. And I mean, there was dead silence in the room. And it was me and one other female in the room. And she, she and I were sitting next to each other. And it was everything she could do not to fall on the floor. She sent me a note. She's like, I am so glad you're here. <laughs> Because yeah, I just didn't that, play with that. That is so true of so many work environments. That oh. they they've been set up in a I think a nineteen fifties model yes. of when <laughs> men worked, women stayed at home, and here we were, and then all of a sudden, suddenly there are women in senior positions or in any position. And yes. they're not designed to cope with the fact that we have a monthly cycle, we have bigger events in our life like pregnancy and then menopause. And that hasn't been thought through at all. There hasn't been any adaption in the kind of work practices or cultures. No. And too often as women, we fall into this notion of we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. That's probably been as much a frustration for me as anything, because I always stood out that I didn't have any problems saying they look. I'm walking out with my breasts appeal because I don't have time to sit here and talk all night. I have other responsibilities at home. And that thing got played out several times. Um, and at one point I resigned from the positions and everybody's so upset. And I said, I don't have time to listen to random speaking and talking and three meetings a week every night. I have a child at home. I'd rather spend time with him than you guys because you're not getting anything done. You guys go home and you pat your kids on the back and they go to bed and all you have to do is bring in a paycheck. You've already eaten. All you have to do is give the money to your wife and life is good. Well, I'm the wife and I'm the doctor and I'm the mom. And so these meetings need to be more efficient. Exactly. And I think that I've noticed that, but I noticed that as well in an environment where there were a lot of young women who mm -hmm. weren't married. Yes. And, and I had the same experiences. And then, you know, it was Friday nights, they wanted to go to after work drinks. Yes. And I'd go, I can come for maybe half an hour, but I have to leave on this particular mm -hmm. time to commute home. Otherwise, my child is going to be standing on the street. 
mm-hmm. when the after school care closes, or I'm going to be charged extra money. And they just kind of yeah. look at me and roll their eyes and thought I was very antisocial. But I was a single yes. mother and I had to get home, pick him up, take him home and feed him. Absolutely. And those, and I remember being that young woman trying to figure out, well, okay, because I'm young and I'm eager and I'm, I'm, um, looking forward to going up in my company and whatnot. And there is part of where we lose our confidence as menopausal women and men and middle aged women, because those two things come together at the same time. And what we have is there's always somebody there to replace you. And, and old women get thrown out to the dogs or before anybody else, you know, men can age and become wise and great and leaders and women age in there. And that's the sign to get a new one. Yes. And it, that, that is really ironic when mm-hmm. you've just elected a 77 year old president. Uh, oh, God. Oh, you, you just do not understand the drama. <laughs> you, you guys see the drama on the news, but if you knew the true drama of how little support he really has in terms of he was not most of our first choices when you're a certain age. But no, I just will. Feels, it feels wrong, Don. I mean, it, it really, yeah. I mean, it's not anything wrong with being old. I mean, you can be fantastic, no. but. To be honest, that that is kind of also an added kind of spining a spotlight on, you know, the age discrimination at times that is just there. I mean, there's no way that a woman at that age or very few women would be put up for that kind of a position. Oh, please. That's an understatement. I mean, if you go back even 20 years, if Ruth Bader Ginsburg were 78 and running, She'd have been trashed in the primary. She never would have gotten off the ground. Oh, yeah. So so the realities and, and there's historical precedence for the notion that women don't retain value over time. Because one of the things that I've always talked to my younger patients about is understanding we are where we are as women for three different reasons. Blood banking antibiotics, and pap smears. So women are not routinely dying by 40 of cervical cancer or dying earlier from complications of childbirth. And that's only happened in three generations now. Because if you go back in human history, before these last three generations, that was the norm everywhere, even in the U.S. Yeah, it was. Yeah, And we don't remember that. No, we, I remember hearing it as a girl because right. both of my grandmothers lost their mothers yes. um, early. Uh, yes. And one was from a meningitis and the other mm-hmm. through tuberculosis. I mean, mm-hmm. today that's very rare in, in countries like the UK and Sweden for somebody yes. from a, a relatively affluent background to yes. die. But they both died young, 40-year-old women. They just didn't survive. And they'd had a couple of stillbirths in between. Yeah. As well. Oh, we could talk a whole, we could have a whole nother segment when we start talking about the differences in what you and I, you know, our generation 
and generations below us. And to some degree, even my mom's generation, because my my mom was born in the 30s and I can't say more than that or she'll kill me. <laughs> um, but she became an adult in the 50s. And that's when women were just getting to where they could work outside the home. That's where women were just getting to where they could consistently go to college. They were the first generation that didn't breastfeed. And that was, that was progress to not be stuck with babies hanging off your breast. Because now we have modern ways of feeding our children. And now I can have my children and I can work so that the finances in our home are better. They're the first generation to routinely get pap smears. We're the first generation to have reliable birth control so that we had control over our own fertility. Those types of changes were monumental for women to be at a precipice of equality with the lives of men, because prior to that, men had three and four different wives because they died. Not because, oh, I don't like this woman or whatnot. Men had never had to deal with women longer than about 20 or 30 years because they died. <laughs> and you just go get the next one. Yeah. You they just go get in, a younger they version. In childbirth. They died in childbirth mainly, or through, yes. as you said, some infectious disease or whatever. Yes. But they never made very few. And I look, I look yes. now as you're saying this, I'm thinking about my my grandparents and the generation before them, the win, ones that survived when I listened to this were unmarried. They'd never had any children. <laughs> okay. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Yeah. They're, they're yes. exactly that. Those two elderly aunts and this cousin of my yes. grandfather. I mean, they, they never had children. They, and they, yes. they were pampered ladies at home. Yes. Um, and they probably never discussed the menopause with anybody. Oh, they, and they were not. just there and they lived to a ripe old age. Well, hello. Sure. There's the answer. Yes. I tell everyone, I said, in the U.S., if you have an opportunity, you go to the 1910 census records. Go find your great-grandmother or your grandmother or your great-great-grandmother in the 1910 census because that's one of the first census opportunities in which they put, they asked women how many pregnancies had they had, how many living children did they have. And when you look at those numbers and you understand that women were at least, and certainly in my family. So I'm African American and all of my family, I can only trace through enslavement in this country. And so when I go to 1910, I've got three great grandmothers that died before 40. All of my great grandmothers in the 1910 census had at least 10 pregnancies. All of them. All of them. One died of TB. We don't talk about TB. In the history of humanity, tuberculosis has killed one out of seven human beings that have ever been on this earth, to, to our knowledge. We don't even, we don't even blink about TB. That, that sounds like such an old fashioned type of thing to think about. One in seven human beings on the planet died from tuberculosis in the existence of our, our collective memories. 
That's just staggering, isn't it? I mean, it's and staggering. I think that just shows how much things have moved forward, as you said, due to those three yes. key factors. Yes. But but now women have some other issues to face, and they're still mm-hmm. facing, aren't they, Donna? Incredible sort of barriers and myths around this menopausal change. Well, I think some of it has to do with us. I'm not going to say fighting the feminist notions because I'm the original feminist in the sense of uh, I have the same rights and responsibilities and opportunities in this earth as anybody that's ever been born. And I take that seriously. But we also have to be willing to acknowledge that hormonal changes are real. They're not a sign of weakness. It's not about, oh, well, it's a power surge. Uh, uh, No. No, No, they're real. The imbalances and the declines and shifts that we have are real. Yes, those are real. And once we are not so afraid that it seems like being weak little girls and we embrace our physiology and we embrace the creatures that we are, that we are different than men, but that doesn't mean we're not equal to men. We're just different. And we need to embrace that and understand that. And then we can do more, but we have to believe that these things can happen, that it's not our fault. This is a developmental stage, no different than puberty. I don't remember puberty being really bad for me, but my sister, oh my God, (laughs) I didn't even want to be in the house. And so menopause is the same thing. It's a developmental stage. I've had patients that came in, that have come into my office to ask me, well, I don't know if I went through menopause. I said, how old are you? Oh, 72. I said, you went through it, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you stop having periods? Oh, well, that happened a long time ago, but I don't have hot flashes. I said, not everybody will find menopause a difficult transition. It's not a disease. I, I emphasize that. I tell all my patients that it's not a disease. It's a time frame of change in our lives from a high hormone environment back down to a low hormone environment like the reverse of puberty. Puberty is crazy because you go from a low to no hormone environment to a high hormone environment. And the reason our bodies do that, you know, the reasons our bodies can do that is because it needs to support fertility. That's it. And when there's no need for ongoing fertility, what triggers menopause is that we're running out of eggs that can function. And so the need for fertility leaves and there's no need to maintain a high hormone environment for the long term because there are negative impacts to a high hormone environment for an extended period of time. Yes, but you're right. There's a lot of women now who in some way don't want to go through this and they are then seeking solutions say well i don't want this to happen to me sure. and and they're getting that fed to them a lot a lot of information that they sure. can stay the same weight that they can exercise like they were 25 <laughs> and i see a big push to oh well just take hrt and then i don't have to experience this but as a doctor I love your your thoughts or your your point of view more importantly on this. Well, it that's that's the anti-aging 
push that pushes the notion, oh, just get your hormone levels up and it'll be fine. And I'm not anti-hormone. I don't want anyone to think that I'm anti-hormone. I meet people where they're at. And I think that's one of the things that I was pleased to get so much feedback on is that when a patient came to me, I didn't dictate to her what she needed to do. I tried to feel her out for what she wanted to have happen in her own life. And then we go from there. I've always been quick to talk about anti-aging is different than menopause. Estrogen is a magic bullet. <laughs> oh, look, yeah. now, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I've done herbals. I've done hormone. I've done pharmaceuticals that are not hormone. Some of, some of which just to try to see what it was like and what it felt like. And some of which is because when I was crazy circling three days on the calendar, I needed to do something. And I just bit the bullet and went with the hormones. I hadn't intended to do hormones because birth control pills and I did not agree with each other very well. And I have enough cancer history in my family that I was concerned with my cancer risk. But when you're crazy and you don't know if you're going to scream at your patient, then you need to do something. And so I did hormones. And three days later, I was like, oh, it's a miracle. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Oh, my God. Let me tell you. I had seen it, but it's nothing like feeling it. Oh my God. I felt like myself again. And we're not talking about maintaining hormone levels consistent with hormone levels in my twenties and thirties. It doesn't take that much hormone to relieve symptoms. It really doesn't. What we find with symptoms is that I tell patients, it's our body withdrawing from the impact of having high hormones. So it doesn't really take that much to settle our bodies down to, to really lengthen that transition. And that's part of it. There's risk to hormone though. Hormone replacement therapy. Whether we do pharmaceutical grade hormone therapy or bioidentical hormone therapy, and I vastly prefer bioidentical hormone therapy because of fewer side effects. If I can give you a preparation that is the exact chemical structure as the hormones that our bodies make, then our side effect profile isn't the same. You're not less at risk of cancer if you are high risk for cancer. Bioidentical hormones don't do that. And I think that's a that that's where we get all of these different notions and pieces of information that oftentimes are marketing that's disguised as credible information. I have patients on Primrin. And there are, pe- there are people in your audience now falling on the ground. Oh my God, she gives people back pregnant mare's urine. Uh, well, some of my patients, number one, can't afford bioidentical hormones. Some of them came to me with Premarin prescriptions that they had been on for 20 years 
And their PCP took them off, their primary care physician took them off because in the family medicine world and the primary care world, those hormones are going to cause cancer. And the Women's Health Initiative study proved that Primarin will cause cancer. And so everybody got taken off hormone. And they're 75 and 80 and not functional because they've been on hormones for 20 years. And somebody took it away. And guess what? I just gave it back to them because they've already proven, especially if you're 85 and you don't have cancer from 40 years of hormone, please, let's bring some common sense to the table. Well, it's, I it's always highly talk about, unlikely, isn't it? It's highly oh, unlikely after yes. 40 years. I mean, that's sort of... Yes, you know. people prove where they are early on in the process. And if you take the time to individualize the approach. So many people can be prevented from being in a situation that is not going to be a positive for them. And that's key. If we continue as physicians to think that delivering medicine is a five or 10 minute visit where we're staring at a computer and then we're like, okay, here, here's a script and you walk out the door for the next 10 minutes, prescri- you know, 10 minute visit. We're failing. Our our healthcare system is failing us. And we've got to do better. Um, I have had 80-something-year-olds on primary. Now, what do I do when everything settles down for patients who are on hormones? When everything settles down and they're back to even keel? then it's time to start decreasing hormones to see how low we can get and maintain a functional status for them. And then every year we readdress how long we want to stay on hormones. And if we're going to stay on hormones five or 10 years, how do we do screening to make sure we're not seeing evidence of increasing the risk of cancer or other abnormalities, but mainly cancer. And so I meet people where they're at. I don't tell you to stay on hormones. I don't make you come off hormones. I've had a couple of patients with breast cancer that believe it or not, I put on hormones. Now that, now that was when I stepped from an experienced physician to an old wise old owl. And that's because I had a big falling out with a patient in the office. And this was premenopausal on my part. So so it wasn't my hormones that were <laughs> causing this. Um, it was an established patient and she insisted that I put her on hormone replacement therapy. And I'm like, you have breast cancer. And she had estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. It's not like she had triple negative. So understand, patients who have had breast cancer who do not have hormone-positive cancer can be on hormone replacement therapy. But this lady had estrogen receptor-positive cancer. And she had an early-stage cancer. It was caught early. She was maybe, I don't know, four years out. Um, she, she probably was a little longer than that because she wasn't on tamoxifen anymore. So it's probably five years out and she wasn't on anything, but she was really suffering. The hot flashes, she, the brain fog. She was an engineer at the Cape 
that, that's Kennedy Space Center. I'm sorry. Um, she wasn't functional. Um, and she wanted to be on hormone replacement therapy. I said, I'm not putting you on hormone. And so I tried some herbal things and she came back. It's just like, I need to, you need to do something. I said, I'm not putting you on hormone. And we went back and forth with a several visits with me trying this thing, trying pharmaceuticals, trying, um, effects or trying a number of different things. I tried, um, with gabapentin, I, I tried a number of things because there are a number of prescriptions that have side effects that can reduce hot flashes or can help with sleep and things like that. And I'm not, I don't have a problem with using anything that works for the patient for what she needs to have us do. And those things just weren't working for her. So this is the third or fourth visit in about six months. And she's like, you need to do something. You need to give me hormones. And we're going back and forth and we're getting louder and louder and more aggressive with each other with her insisting that I had to do it and me insisting that I'm not going to do it. And then finally I said, I'm not going to give you something that's going to kill you. She said, I'm going to kill myself if you don't give me something. And boy, when I tell you, I sat back in my chair because she was serious. And I looked at her and I understood. I understood she was serious. And I gave her hormones. And I went through all of the, you know, I, I, I just, I, I just, I'm going to give you the lowest dose. I'm going to blah, 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 da, 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 da. And she came back two weeks later herself again, apologizing profusely for screaming at me in the hot, in the office. And I almost burst into tears because she was right. She was going to kill herself if I didn't provide some relief for her and her symptoms. And so a five year death sentence for for cancer did not loom larger in her mind than the very immediate sense that I can't function like this a day longer. And I gave her hormone. And then when we both had kind of settled down and I understood that there is no dogma ever that I have to treat every one of my patients individually. And so we came up with a plan to monitor her hormone levels, to get her settled down and eventually switch her off of an estrogen containing compound and just leave her on testosterone. And it took about a year or so to kind of make that transition. And we still followed hormone levels to make sure that the way testosterone converts to estrogen wasn't looming large in her system. And everybody was happy. Wow. But that is a a great example of really listening to your patients mm -hmm. and not and not having dogma because I would see a lot of that, particularly in the UK, that there are people who take just very strong stances which yes. which feel like this people are having hormone replacement therapy, it's the only way forward. And right. in some cases, like in the case of this patient you shared information about, I mean she clearly needed that but there are others for whom maybe that is a short-term experience maybe that's mm -hmm. not needed so I, mm -hmm. you're so right when you say it's an individual uh treatment it's a conversation between doctor and patient yes. to yes. find the right way forward yes one of my most popular visits were patients that i put on herbal therapy they didn't want hormones. They were scared of hormones. They wanted something, but I just put them on, a, I tried them on an herbal supplement and they loved it. Everybody comes to the table from their perspective. 
And so that's the approach I need to take, not my patients are coming in and I need to figure out how to make sure they understand how to do what I want them to do. It's about them coming in and me being able to find out what their need sets are and then what their comfort level is or their, like I tell them, what's, what's your gut telling you? What's your spirit telling you you want to have happen? I want the minimum that I need. I, I, I want to do this without hormones. I want to do this without any intervention if I can. Okay, well, so then let's sit and look at what kind of measures you can use to knock out the top three. I make people make a list and I make them make an, an, a priority list. I want you to write down your symptoms with the worst symptoms first and the least symptoms the last. And then I look at their list and I make them keep their list because it's a checklist. And I tell them, I'm only going to address the top three. And maybe for some patients, it might be the top two, but I'm only going to address the ones that are the priority for you to have addressed. And then we're going to regroup. Because some of these minor things may fall away if we fix the, the things that are bothering you the most. My patients who are the most stressed out tended to have the most severe symptoms. That seems quite logical to me, actually, given mm-hmm. how much stress impacts on progesterone, on estrogen, on melatonin, mm-hmm. and everything else. Cortisol mm-hmm. does so Growth much hormone, more than things. just be, make us stress. I mean, it impacts the whole system. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And many of those hormonal systems are also declining at the same time. I'll tell everyone. Menopause is women's midlife crisis. Men don't get an excuse. We do. (laughs) (laughs) And so don't beat yourself up about it. Let's approach it and address it in a manner that puts you in a positive spin moving forward. That's it. Yeah. That is so, very heartening. Donna, when you say that, I just I just really love that. And I think that's a, the biggest takeaway message I think any listener can have here is exactly what you said, you know, that sense that it is this life stage. And yes. that if we approach it and we address the things that aren't working for us in whichever way, in consultation with a knowledgeable and caring physician, it's just a life stage. And then, you know, on the other side, woohoo, it's actually quite good. <laughs> yes. Oh, absolutely. There, there's so much opportunity here. And women don't notice that. There's so much opportunity because a lot of times there are changes that need to happen in the household. And it's a good conversation to have. I'm Florida, how many of my patients are coming in because their families are hounding them to do something because it's, they're not particularly bothered by how they are. They are, they are hell on wheels in their homes and everyone's afraid of them. My, my teaser is that when, you know, when you're biting your husband's heads off, yeah, it's his fault. It's, it's them, not you. When the kids are getting screamed and hollered at, yeah, it's them, not you. But when your dog won't greet you when you walk through the door, it's you. 
<laughs> that, so, is, that is true. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because if your dog is afraid of you and your behavior, it's you. <laughs> you you just can't argue with that. It's you. Yeah, you we you need to do something. With dog. <laughs> you can't argue with a dog. There's no. nothing you can do to a dog to make them hate you, almost. So if your dog is afraid of you or hating you, it's you. <laughs> but assuming you're not at that stage, then your husband being afraid of your behavior, then it's time to want we address some balance in our health. When your children are afraid of your behavior, because they're triggering you and you have and the gloves are off and the controls are off. So they're not new issues. You're just done. Yeah. How do we spin that into a positive? Yeah. Yeah. So how do we spin that into a positive? As opposed to a fractured set of relationships going forward the next 20 years. Very true. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. Donna, I have loved talking to you. I wish that you had been my doctor through the the menopause. I didn't have much help, but I feel very inspired. If you had a couple of really key takeaways for listeners to to go away with, what would they be around the menopause and how to approach it? The big issue is, one, this is a life stage. It's not a disease. You're not broken. It's very common. Almost, almost a hundred percent of women go through it. So it's very common. And so don't be afraid of it, but don't ignore it as though you're too weak or you're not doing the right things. And that's why this is happening to you. If you're struggling, reach out and get help, get information, get help. And a lot of times you're going to be rebuffed. That's probably the hardest part. Keep going to the next person. So you get somebody that's listening. Not somebody that's always offering a cure, somebody that's listening so that they can meet you where you're at. I go over again and emphasize it's a stage in life. It's a developmental stage. And it will not last forever. And there are definite things you can do to feel better soon. It's funny, Clarissa, I'm getting my show together. And the name, believe it, the name of my show is Menopausal Midlife Mind Your Business Show. I love because, it. I love be, that, Donna. That is absolutely, I think, you know, because I keep it real. I, I my I'm already rebranding. My initial brand was Be Free from Hormone Hell, and that sounds fine. But let's get to the nitty gritty. It's menopause. It's midlife, and I need to be figuring this out. And so I'm doing uh, my show. I actually filmed the first episode last week and I'm going to film a couple more episodes. So I will share with you in a couple of weeks, those actual URLs, if you care to share it with your clients. So it's a show and podcast. And And ultimately we'll move into some more things if we get enough demand. But I want to just start talking about the little pieces here and there and give a little tidbit once a week to really kind of talk about what can I do today to feel better. That is fantastic, Donna. And where can people learn more about you and the work that you do? At this stage of the game, I am still in the early stages of having all that set up. So I'm encouraging people to send me an email 
and I will send those links out. And then, of course, I'm going to talk to you about coming on my show. (laughs) And we'll also add that because I, I want people to be able to send in their questions and their concerns. So I'm DG Ivory MD, D as in Donna, G as in girl, I, V as in Victor, E-R-Y, M-D, at femalematters.com. Wonderful. And we will put that in the show notes too. Okay. And Donna, then, it's um, been a pleasure having you <laughs> sharing so much depth and passion for this area. I am so grateful that you took the time out from your busy schedule to be here. Clarissa, it has been my pleasure. I really, really, really love helping women get through this process because the other end of this process is a fantastic place to be. I'm not on any hormones. I'm not on any herbals. I'm not all that hot anymore. My moods are back under my control. I I feel like I'm back in control and that life is looking up and this is the best life going forward that I've ever had. Fantastic. That is just fantastic. mm -hmm. And I can echo that it definitely is. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. You have an absolutely great afternoon. I will. Thank you for listening. If you have loved or liked this episode, then I would be deeply grateful if you would head over to iTunes and give it a five-star rating. My mission is to reach as many women as possible, menopausal midlife women who may be feeling alone and asking questions. Why do I feel this way? Thriving Through Menopause is all about a community and our collective wisdom. You matter to me. Your feedback, opinions and stories matter to me. And I would love to hear from you. So drop me an email, clarissa at clarissachristiansen.com. I genuinely want your feedback and your ideas on the topics that you would like to hear more of on this podcast. And if you are a woman who feels that they are struggling alone through menopause and you need more support, pop over to my website, clarissachristiansen.com. You can find free resources and you can book a one-to-one discovery call with me. Let's start conversation. Thank you once again for listening. The United States Border Patrol has exciting and rewarding career opportunities with the nation's largest law enforcement organization. Border Patrol agents enjoy great pay, outstanding federal benefits, and up to $20,000 in recruitment incentives. If you are looking for a way to serve something greater than yourself, consider the United States Border Patrol. Learn more online at cbp.gov careers usbp. That's cbp.gov careers usbp. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the best ever Big Mac burger. Take it away, Hamburglar. Bravo, bravo. He said, there's more special sauce in every bite. Rubble, rubble. He said, rubble, rubble. Rubble, rubble. Rubble, rubble indeed, my friend. Try the juicier Big Mac and get 20% off any purchase of $10 or more. Only on the app. Comparison to prior classic burgers, limited time only at participating McDonald's. Valid once per day. Excludes tax. Must be opted into rewards. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.